0: Today's scripture reading is from Matthew 6, verses 14 and 15, and Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive your trespasses. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell to his knees, employing him,
1: He refused and went and put him in a prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is the word of the
2: Lord. Praise be to Christ. Uh, So, as we've already uh, acknowledged, today is Palm Sunday. This is the annual feast in the Christian tradition. It happens the Sunday before Easter every year, and it's to commemorate uh, what uh, we call the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ, which is also recorded in Matthew chapter 21. And uh, that incident represents the fulfillment of a prophecy that had been given by the prophet Zechariah hundreds of years before, uh, where Zechariah said, "'Behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey.'" Now, uh, this was mentioned uh, in, in the, the children's reflection just a minute ago from, from Pastor Casey. Um, but if a king entered town on a donkey, it was a symbolic gesture of a king coming to announce peace. Um, if a king was coming in on a horse, it, it would have been to demonstrate his power and, and usually as, as the first step in an act of, of, of conquering a new territory. So, a king comes in on a horse to conquer, a king comes in on a donkey to declare there's peace. There is no more war, there is no more hostility, there is no more uh, enmity. And in response to this, the crowds shout the word, Hosanna. And uh, in English, that word means, Lord save, Lord save. And what the people did not realize As they were crying out, Hosanna, Lord, save, was the degree, the gravity, the extent to which Jesus would have to go in just a few short days in order to fulfill that request to save, to save us from the evil in the world outside of us and most especially to save us from the evil of the world inside of us, to save His people from their sins. And so, how bad is it? Genesis chapter 6 verse 5 says it's this bad. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness was on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. Isaiah, who had the purest lips as a prophet in Israel, said, woe is me because I'm a man of unclean lips. And then he would go on to say that even our best, most virtuous deeds are like filthy rags compared to what God requires. You know, my friend Ray Ortland, who is also one of my predecessors here, a senior pastor of Christ Prez. Now he's a, a pastor of an Acts 29 church in, um, in the Sylvan Park area. But Ray said this recently in one of his sermons, we cannot be saved by our obedience because our obedience doesn't exist. And you can't be saved by something that doesn't exist. And so the message today The message today is that we have been forgiven so much that to hold on to resentment, to attempt to retaliate, or even to fantasize about retaliation when we've experienced injury makes zero sense for a child of God. And a sign that we understand the parable that I'm about to explain, or at least that we've started to understand it, is that we are growing into a people who forgive radically. And so, the rabbis, you know, at the time that, that, that these Scriptures were written, the rabbis would tell the people, and this feels somewhat generous if you think about it, just say somebody steals from you three times, the rabbi said you have to forgive somebody three times before you'll stop forgiving them and, and, and hold a grudge against them. And, and so here we have Peter coming to Jesus saying, Jesus, and I think Peter's motives were good. I think Peter meant really well. I mean, think about it again. What if it happened to you seven times? Somebody stole from you seven times. Somebody lied to you seven times. Somebody betrayed you seven times. And Peter said, you know what, Lord? I love you so much. I want to do double plus one, what the rabbis require. Should I forgive somebody uh, seven times? Jesus' response was, well, since you asked, not seven times, but 70 times seven. And Jesus wasn't saying 490 times, and then you can punish somebody and bludgeon them for the rest of your life. You know, 70 times 7 was an idiom meaning infinity. In other words, there is no limit to the forgiveness that the forgiven people of God are called to offer to their neighbors. And so, I want to explore this theme of forgiveness from three headings. How much, how come, and how can we? How much, how come, and how can we? So, the how much question, the answer to the how much question, we've already heard Jesus' answer, more than you ever thought or dreamed possible. No cap on the degree to which you will forgive somebody. No statute of limitations. No limit to the number of sins that one person can commit against you and you forgive them of that. So, Peter's use of the number seven, it's actually a perfect number in in the Scriptures. It's a number resembling perfection, much like the rabbi's number of three. And yet, Jesus is saying neither three nor seven is perfect enough. But, But still, both of those numbers from our perspective, feel generous, feel charitable, and and, and certainly feel above and beyond the norm, certainly above and beyond what we experience day to day, you know, in life. So, what Jesus does in His parable is He compares two amounts. There's the amount that each of us owes to God, 10,000 talents, and then there's the, the amount that you or I would owe to a fellow servant or a fellow human being if they injure us or offend us and that's a hundred denarii. Now, some of our English translations, I, I think, are incredibly unfortunate because, you, you know, you might look in your English translation, and there's a footnote there that says, well, a hundred denarii, that's just a few pennies, or that's just a small little paltry amount. A hundred denarii was a hundred days wages for the average worker, equivalent in today's dollars of about 12 grand. 12 grand's a pretty significant debt. Like, that'll buy a good used car You know, 12 grand is a significant debt for somebody who has a lot of money, let alone for, you know, kind of a a mid-level, you know, worker or or blue-collar worker like the people that Jesus is speaking to in in the parable. So, a hundred denarii, just to be clear, is no small amount. And I I think Jesus is being very kind by using that amount because he's affirming what we feel, and that is that no act of forgiveness is easy. No act of forgiveness comes without some sort of cost. You know, Bonhoeffer put it this way, when Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. That's, you know, straight quote out of the cost of discipleship. It's another way of saying, you know, we've already confessed this in our time of confession, that the call of Jesus and the call of Christian discipleship is not to deny your neighbor, take up your comforts, and follow your dreams. That's the American vision. That's not the kingdom of God vision. The kingdom of God vision is to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. And that includes following Jesus into the gut-wrenching, forgiving places. This, this includes petty offenses and pet peeves, of course, you know somebody cuts you off in traffic, um, you know, the waiter gets your order wrong or, or, or brings you cold food, uh, or like me, I committed two sins during the National Basketball Championship last Monday night. Number one, I broke the fast that I encouraged all of you to go on with me. Don't, don't put yourself out there on social media in a picture with a well-known person. And, of course, I had to put this old picture of Roy Williams, the UNC coach, and myself, you know, given that they were in the… So, I did that. So, sorry. I hope you'll forgive me. God already has. Uh, And second, I was getting really resentful toward the Tar Heels because they were missing all their free throws in the last two minutes of the game when you're supposed to hit all your free throws. And I was yelling at the television… And my wife and my daughter were like, oh my goodness, what is going on? The claws are coming out, right? And so, there are petty things that aren't even sins. It's not a sin to miss a free throw. It's it's not a good thing to do, but it's it's not a sin (laughs) to miss a free throw in the last minute. So, there are petty things that we have to develop the art of forgiving and letting them go. I mean, it's really in the petty things and the pet peeves that prepare us for the bigger things, by the way. You know, don't ever think that that being unfaithful in a small thing is going to prepare you to be faithful in a big thing when the big thing comes. But Jesus is also talking about acts of forgiveness that will rip your heart out. You know, one of my jobs as a preacher is to close the gap between contemporary American Christianity and biblical Christianity. Every single season of biblical Christianity, the people of God are under oppression. It starts all the way back in Pharaoh's Egypt. It continues on uh, in Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon where, where the government would throw people in furnaces. and and in lion's dens to be eaten alive if they crossed the king. In Assyria, where similar acts of injustice and cruelty would be done to people who believed. And you could move forward to the New Testament, all of which was written in the context of Caesar's Rome, where there was violence and persecution constantly the people of faith being under the threat of their lives. We get a tax break for being religious people on all of our charitable donations. They never knew anything about a tax break. That's a privilege, not not a religious right, just to be clear. That's a benefit of being an American Christian, not a byproduct of being a biblical one. We'll take the tax breaks, of course. But these kinds of realities do not enter our reality until we experience betrayal or until we experience a diagnosis that that puts us face to face with death. And then it kicks into us even here in the land of the free and the home of the brave. It kicks into us, is my Christianity real? Is it real like Joseph who forgave his brothers who sold him into slavery? Is it real like Hosea who was called upon by God to forgive his wife, Gomer, who cheated on him repeatedly? Is it to forgive like Isaiah who preached some of the most beautiful, you know, gospel content in the history of the world and got more and more gracious and more and more kind the more people rejected him along the way to the end that they sought him in too at the end of his life? Or does it mean that we forgive like the Apostle Paul, who after being banished from the Jewish community that he had once led and been a hero in, and and, and being persecuted and whipped by his old buddies, he would have the audacity to write in the book of Romans, if I could give up my own salvation so that these, my Jewish brothers, could be saved, I would. Is that the kind of forgiveness that we're called to? See, I think it's really important to pause here just for a moment and remind ourselves that these are real people. These aren't made-up stories. These are people who lived in time, space, history, who faced deep hurt, deep betrayal, deep loss, and they're being called upon to forgive And that's part of what identifies you as a follower of Christ in the world who understands what it means to be forgiven. When your spouse has been unfaithful, when your parent has put you in counseling for your entire adult life because of the way they shamed you, because your business partner has stolen from you, because a bully has injured you or taken the life of somebody that you love, June 17, 2015 was a dark, dark day in Charleston, South Carolina, when a 21-year-old young man named Dylan Roof walked in unannounced to a Bible study of a few people in an African-American church in Charleston, South Carolina. And it appeared that he was just there to visit, just there to listen in, just there to participate. He was greeted, welcomed hospitably, as churches are meant to do And then at some point in the evening, he pulls out a gun, starts opening fire, and he kills nine people. And just this past January, his sentencing took place, and part of that process was that the the, the friends and family of the victims were brought into the courtroom to speak to the one who had taken the lives of their friends and their family members. And Felicia Sanders who's a mother whose son was killed in this atrocious act, looked at the killer, Dylan Roof, and said, you, I'm going to read this slowly so we can all absorb it, you took my love away from me. I know you because you are in my head all day. I forgive you. May God have mercy on your soul. The boy's father, Tyrone Sanders, said this to him, Why you want to single out black people in a church, I don't know. But whoever your creator is needs to come and be with you. And then Bethany Middleton Brown, whose sister was killed in the attack, said to the killer, I wanted to hate you, but my faith tells me no. I wanted to remain angry and bitter, but my view of life won't let me. During this entire sentencing, Dylan Roof didn't make eye contact with a single person who was talking to him, didn't say a word until his closing statement, which was, I still feel like I had to do it. How much? are we to forgive? Our otherworldly brothers and sisters in Charleston, South Carolina are giving us a picture of the potential extreme for all of us. How much? And then secondly, how come? Why on earth would people who've been injured this badly purpose to let go? of bitterness and purpose to forgive somebody who's not even remorseful about what he's done. I mean, Dylan Roof was given mammoth compassion by this community, unsolicited mammoth compassion, and he was unmoved, maintaining that he was innocent. And, And of course, we want to arch our backs and say, evil, evil. And we would be right if we said that's Evil, but we need to be careful lest we assume ourselves to be more like Jesus than we are like Dylan Roof in our hearts. How are we doing with grudges over lesser things? How are we doing when traffic is backed up, when somebody interrupts our agenda, when somebody makes us late, when somebody gossips about us. How are we doing with lesser things? Are we holding people in contempt? Remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount earlier. If you hate somebody in your heart, you're a murderer. We are not innocent. We do have things in common with mass murderers, including the debt, 10,000 talents, okay, so a hundred denarii, that's about 12 grand, 10,000 talents, which represents the amount that each of us has been forgiven by God through Jesus, is the equivalent of six billion dollars in today's money. You N.T. Know, Wright reflects on this, and he says, You know, what God has forgiven each of us is like an enormous bucket full of water. And each time we are called upon to forgive somebody else, we're called upon to take a drop out of that bucket and splash them with it. And and what we're left with is a bucket that is still full. Just for perspective, you know, N.T. Wright says, how can… really? Is it that much of a difference? Yes. We have also put somebody else's son to death. You realize that, right? You realize the table that we're going to stand around together is because we have all, we have all taken the life of somebody else's son. what Good Friday is about. That's what Palm Sunday points to. And so, from God's perspective, the distance between Scott Saul's yelling at the TV because people aren't making free throws and Dylan Roof doing what he did, the difference is something akin to the distance between Nashville and Memphis, about 210 miles. That's a long walk, But if you compare Scott Saul's will to forgive to God's will to forgive, it's more like the distance between the earth and the sun. Give or take, about 90 million miles, physicists will tell us. So there's no comparison. And the closer I actually become to Jesus, the more I will realize how far away I am from the sun, relative to how close I am to Memphis. You know, Spurgeon put it this way about, you know, the 10,000 talents. He said this, this is such a lovely thought. God is more willing to forgive than we are to sin. Isn't that a beautiful, hopeful thought? Why should we forgive? How come? The answer is for God's sake. You know, we forgive $12,000 because we've been forgiven six billion. And the 12,000, while weighty and while it takes something out of us emotionally, maybe economically, and maybe in other ways, it will take something out of us. That's what forgiveness is. It's essentially the will not to retaliate, hold accountable, Certainly. Sue for the money that's been stolen from you? Sure. But in terms of a personal vendetta to strike back and to hate, forgiveness means absorbing that. Trust the person who's hurt you? No. At least not until they build a trustworthy track record to give you a basis and a reason to trust them. But. Refuse to retaliate. Ret- refuse to punch them in the nose. Refuse to pull a, a, a pound out of their flesh in order to pay down your own emotional pain. Yes, that's what forgiveness is—to to refuse those things. Why forgive, for God's sake? Because a twelve thousand dollar debt is a drop from the bucket of the six billion we've been forgiven. But we don't just do it for God's sake, we also do it for our own sake. You know, it's just, the servant here, it says that the king threw him in the prison, but, but it really, really was just the laws of the king's society that put him in the prison. You know, the king is swift to turn to the, the unmerciful servant who wouldn't give forgiveness to his fellow servant. Uh, you know, the king turned to the servant and said, you're doing this to yourself, Because you would not forgive your fellow servant. Because you, therefore, have no idea what it means to be part of my kingdom and a subject and beneficiary of my merciful, benevolent, compassionate kingdom. You've you've put yourself on the outside. Grudges, resentments, bitterness, best way to empower your enemy. Some of us, a dead person is running our lives right now. Some of us, somebody who's been buried for 20 years is still running our lives because we have not let go, and we have not pursued Jesus to empower us to do that. You know, Booker T. Washington said this, he said, "'I shall allow no man to belittle my soul by making me hate him.'" Or Anne Lamott Not forgiving is like drinking rat poison and then waiting for the rat to die. Or Cory ten Boom, after emerging from all the atrocities of the Holocaust, said this, to forgive is to set a prisoner free and discover that the prisoner was you. So how much? How come? And then lastly, how can we? Where where do we get the power for this? Where do we find the resources for this? Got a couple of closing thoughts on that. Number one, it's it's again, it's a mistake to think that this should not hurt. Real forgiveness does hurt because it, it means absorbing especially the emotional cost. Whatever, whatever happens in the law courts if somebody steals from you or hits your car or, 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 or what have you, whatever happens, you know, in, in the just laws of society is one thing, but it's the emotional debt we're talking about here. Not to punish, but to leave, you know, the cosmic judgment and the cosmic dealing with offenses to God who alone is the judge it hurts. And I think Jesus wants us to know that. I think that's why both the Psalms and the book of Ephesians say, be angry. That's the literal translation. It's actually an imperative. It's actually a command. Be angry when it's right to be angry. In the same way that Jesus was mad as a hornet at death at at Lazarus' tomb, in the same way that Jesus was mad as a hornet at the bully Pharisees in in Matthew uh, 23 for being bullies, be angry and sin not be angry while you're forgiving. The two can coexist. You know, we covered this in greater depth in the Turn the Other Cheek sermon if you want to go back and revisit that and re-explore it um, in the online recording. But God is not saying be a doormat. He is not saying just keep taking it on the chin. But He is saying don't strike back. And then the last Closing thought is this that 10,000 talents is, is a statement of the debt that we owe to God, but it's not just a statement of our debt, it's also a statement of our value. Because what is the one thing that God has entrusted us to steward for Him? Our lives. That's the one thing. And if we have blown and squandered and wasted our lives by living independently instead of living for His glory and living for His purposes and and, and following Him in obedience, not denying our neighbor, taking up our comforts and following our dreams, but denying ourselves, taking up our crosses and following Jesus, if we squandered that, it's the equivalent of squandering 10,000 talents of the King's resource if I squander the one life that He's given me. It's not just a statement of my debt. Do you hear this? It's a statement of my value. And what He says is, in forgiving you, I'm going to give you your life back. And there's this lovely statement later on in chapter 6 when when Jesus starts talking about anxiety and worry and, you know, meditating on on negative possibilities in the future. And He says, look, here's how you face your anxiety. Here's the starting point. It really is theological recognize that you are much more valuable than the birds and the fields and the flowers that God takes care of in such a marvelous way. Recognize, and these are, these are Jesus' words, you are much more valuable. Paul echoes this in Ephesians 1.18 when he makes this stunning statement when he, he, he says not only are, is God our inheritance, We are His inheritance, His treasure, His wealth, worth the cost of His life. You are worth that to Him. So, just to sum it all up, on this day that we think about the King who came in, not on a horse to destroy, but on a donkey to declare peace and the end of hostility, and and dividing walls between heaven and earth, and also between people and people, torn down once and for all through the gospel of Jesus Christ. God can also look at you and look at me, and I'm going to read it slowly again and say the same words that the grieving mother said to her own son's killer. God can also say to us, you took my love away. I know you because you are in my head all day. I forgive you. Thanks be to God.